0: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 72, When the Mountains Moved. So last week, we stopped in 975, with the Fatimid mid-state established in Egypt, and al holding a court that teemed with intellectual curiosity you had verbal chiefs, Shia theologians, Coptic bishops, and Ibn Killis, a Jewish convert to Islam, who still had close ties to the Jewish community in Egypt, and specifically sponsored a rabbi named Moses, who was also in al Mu'izz court. Abraham, our patriarch, would be part of this court, but wisely for diplomatic purposes, he avoided the interreligious discussion that Al was a fan of and stuck to practical business and issues. He left those discussions to Sawiris, the bishop of Ashmunin, who had a gift with words and knew his stuff. And as I said last week, Sawiris was sharp, acerbic, and an intellectual force to be reckoned with. So naturally, he ended up butting heads with both Moses and Edna Kallis. Now, the next series of events is super controversial under his and accuracy. I'm not planning to avoid looking at the events critically and try to figure out what is fiction and what is real. We always take the hard and less traveled road in this podcast. But to keep things organized, would lay out the events as stated in the primary sources the history of the patriarchs both fiction and real and then go back and examine things. The written account that we have was written about 75 years after the events happened so it is not an eyewitness account but close enough to the events that it merits Historical consideration In time distant wise, it would be like a, a World War I account written today, especially something like the Christmas truce, where soldiers just stopped fighting and crossed enemy line, celebrating Christmas with the enemy. Not a lot of people alive today would have been eyewitnesses, but for sure there would be plenty of people who would above for memory would live with the details would be hazy and different from one person to another, but all of them would tell of a magical night in the middle of a terrible war. So just keep that in mind as we go through our own miraculous narrative, where the mountains moved. The whole thing started when Saviris and Moses slash Ibn Kelis clashed in a wise court. To keep it short, Sawiris, so in essence, refused to debate Moses in Christian doctrine on the grounds that he was a Jew. When pressed by the caliph, he produced a verse from Isaiah, a book which he and Moses agreed that it was inspired by God, where it says, The ox has known its owner, and the donkey has known its master, but Israel has not known. me." And then he proceeds to argue that, quote, the beasts are more intelligent than you, that is Moses, and as such it is not lawful for me to convince in the council of the caliph of the faithful may his might endure with him. As you, for the beasts are more rational than he, and God indeed has attributed to him ignorance. End quote. Ouch. This kind of discourse while was entertaining to the caliph and the Muslim court, and made Sawiris many fans, it made the relationship with Ibn Killas and Moses tense. And to be fair to Sawiris, he did wisely identify that having a debate on Christian and Jewish doctrine in a Muslim-dominated world was a terrible idea. But his way of avoiding that debate, in the least diplomatic way possible, was bound to create tension. In a follow-up discussion, Moses then came up with his own verse from Matthew seventeen twenty. That is a correction from last time, by the way. I mixed up chapter and verse, so I said Matthew 20 instead of 17. But anyway, the verse said, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And then he asked the caliph to make Zawiris prove that verse. So that, and I'm quoting here again, he may know that the Christians are frauds and liars. Intrigued, the caliph decided to go ahead and ask for the proof. Now, things were getting out of hand, and Abraham decided to get involved. He held a couple of meetings with the caliph, but al muizz held up his demands. Quote, You Christians are thousands and ten thousands in this land, and I desire to be brought to me one of you, that this miracle may be manifested at his hands. And you, Abraham, chief of them, it is requisite that this deed should be done by you. Otherwise I shall destroy you by the sword. Notice here that the caliphs threatened to kill Abraham, not all the Christians in Egypt as it is widely told in the modern telling of the story. The idea here was to extort a large find from Abraham. a realistic and, as we have seen repeatedly in our narrative, quite common occurrence in the interactions between the state and the patriarchy. al was not stupid, and he was not about to kill close to half of his subjects because the rabbi told him about a verse in the Bible. But that did not mean that he did not see an opportunity to remind the patriarch of his lowly state and make some money on the side. Probably was the encouragement of Ibn Killas, who had his own personal beef with Savir's. Whatever the case, Abraham was stuck with the mission to go move a mountain, and he was given three days to get it done. For his part, he did the only thing that can be done, and instituted three days of fasting and prayers for himself and the community of the church that he resided in, the Hanging Church in the old Byzantine fortress of Babylon. On the third day, we are told, he fell into a deep sleep from all the stress. There, in his sleep, he was instructed by St. Mary to go find a one-eyed tanner carrying a jug of water in the market, It was he that had enough face to move the mountain. Abraham was initially hesitant, and it was recorded that he had said, I believe that Satan has played a trick on me. But he went to the market anyway, and to his surprise, found the one-eyed tanner. He brought him to the hanging church, where he pressed him to tell him about his face and story. The tanner told him that he was not really anything special. He was a day laborer, dirt poor, where his wages gives him nothing except the bread to eat, with some of that bread shared with other destitute men and women. Every day before he starts his work, he would carry clean water to distant settlement of folks who could not make the travel themselves. And lastly, he was blind in one eye, because quote, I blotted out an account of the commandment of the Lord when I beheld what was not mine was lust, and so that I was going to hell an account of it, i.e. literal execution of a biblical verse, just like the mountain verse. Abraham was naturally impressed, and told the tanner about the situation. The tanner then instructed Abraham, to go to the mountain in question with crosses, censers and gospels and all the Christians that he could gather. He is to stand on one side, while al and his entourage stand on the other side. Then he is to cry, Lord have mercy, prostrating himself with all those who are with him, and the ground three times, and then crossing the mountain as they are getting up, most importantly Abraham was to tell no one about the tanner, which Abraham agreed to. Now, this is a bit problematic for the historicity of the account. If Abraham really followed through with the promise, then how do we know about the tanner story? It would not have gotten down to us. And if he did it, then we don't really know how did Michael, writing 75 years later, Know all these intimate details about him. But I will get there in a minute. For now, Abraham followed the Tanner directions. And what you know, to the surprise of everyone quote, Every time Abraham lifted up his face and made the sign of the cross, the mountain was lifted up from the ground. When they prostrated themselves, the mountain came down to its space. So the mountain did not really change spots, as sometimes implied in the modern telling. More or less, moved up and down in its spot. But anyway, Almois was rightly scared, and then impressed. He asked the patriarch to request anything of him, and he will make it happen. After diplomatically responding that he wants nothing, but that God strengthened his state and give him victory over the enemies and al-Mu'az diplomatically pressing him to ask for something, Abraham finally requested to rebuild a church in Fustat that was seized and turned into a sugarcane warehouse, also to renovate the hanging church which was in disrepair. Now, the request here is pretty significant, because even in the so-called Golden Age, Of Christian-Muslim relations in Egypt, a caliphal decree was needed to build or renovate a church. If you remember, all the way back in episode 64, the jealous servant, we talked about the emerging precepts of demitude under the caliph al-Mutawakkil who died in 861, about a hundred years earlier. Well now it was fully mature at least on the everyday Muslim level. In those hundred years, it became the unquestionable law of the land that new churches could not be built in Muslim lands. Hence, Abraham request of a rebuilding rather than a new building. Also, a renovation was not generally allowed. If there anything of a historical value here, is that it was literally easier to move a mountain than to build a new church in Egypt. And that's under a tolerant regime. And if you're wondering, Abraham's request had nothing to do with the money. Al-Muiz offered to pay for the buildings, but Abraham refused. And further illustrating this point of how difficult it is was to build a church, is what happened after the caliphal decrees came out and it became time to actually build a new church. Almost like a scene from modern Egypt, a mob gathered at the spot and proclaimed, If we are all slain with one sword, we shall not allow anyone to place one stone upon another in this church. For the Ismaili Shia, i.e. the elite and most of the army at this point, the Caliph decrees were divine law. So it wasn't really a big deal if he decided that it's okay to build a church. But to the Sunni mob that was present, building a church in Islamic land was a violation of divine law. A worse cause to fight the Caliph for. As the leader of the mob, the imam who led the prayers of the local mosque put it, when the Caliph troops showed up to disperse the mob, I desire to die today in the name of God and to not let anyone build this church. Al Mu'izz, when he was told of the Imam's heroism, told the soldiers to grant him his wish and bury him alive under the foundation. He backed down pretty quickly, but the soldiers decided to carry out the orders anyway. Abraham had to intervene again and beg Al to let the guy go. There was no way that the church would have functioned with a dead imam in its foundation. And so he was let go, and the church was built. It still exists today in old Cairo, and would function as the patriarchal seat from 13 to 1500 AD. The one present today is not the original one so. The original church was burned by another mob in 1168, and the current one was rebuilt. Still so, at least its foundation, are more than a thousand years old. And so we end the narrative of moving the mountain. Now, over the years several layers were added to the story. The mountain was given a name and a location on Mukattam Hills east of Cairo. The tanner was also given a name, Sama'an or Simon in English. And even a date to the events was given in 976 or 979. Both of them would be wrong anyway as al died in December 975. Also we are told in the latter iteration of the story that al converted and the church that was built was to baptize him And in it, as a proof, was a large baptismal font for adults. Which is kind of true. The current church does have a large baptismal font. But remember, the original one was burned. And the current one was built in the 12th century. 300 years later after the miracle. So yeah, the conversion is also not true. Even until the 20th century more layers were being added to the story. On August 4th, 1991, Saint-Sama'an relics were apparently miraculously found, and a huge church sprung in the heart of a in his name. Also, a modernized biography of his life with more details was published. So, if we were to evaluate the historicity of the account, i.e. using modern objective standards to assist for accuracy, the story with all its extra elements stands on a very shaky ground. Now, that doesn't mean that we should chuck the whole account into the legend and the folk tales section and forget about it, no, something did happen in 975, on Michael Bishop of Tennis, writing 75 years later, was recording real events, at least in his perception. In its core, the moving of the mountain account records real individuals who we know did exist, and interactions between those individuals that is entirely fitting with other accounts of the time. Ibn al muizz Abraham, Sawiris, are all real and their behavior and reaction is in line of what we would expect. The account would be entirely realistic if we were to replace a mountain that is moving up and down to a massive earthquake that shook it side to side. Also, this whole tanner thing is there for a very good reason. You see, it doesn't take much of a mental leap to say to Michael and his peers 75 years later, if Abraham and his bishops moved the mountain a generation back, why can't you guys do it? Why can't the current patriarch do it? And if you guys can't, well, maybe you're not good enough like the saintly Abraham and Saviars. The tanner needed to be there. He was the exceptional saint, performing an exceptional miracle. Thus, it made total sense to make him unanimous, an everyday man. And who knows, he may have really existed. It's hard to reconcile so, given his insistence of staying unanimous and Michael not giving him a name, and then later all the other details and layers that were added to the story. Suya so yeah, if you ask me, the account and its core based on the earliest written account by Michael Bishop of Tunis, is based on real events and individuals. Through the years, several layers of details were added to serve a specific purpose. For example, as a personal eyewitness, I can tell you for sure that the latest layer, the Relics of saint Saman, helped transform Al-Muqattam into a pilgrimage site which transformed the area economically and allowed for a huge cathedral to be built. In the same light, could assigning a specific location east of Cairo help in the official move of the patriarchy from Alexandria to Cairo in 1047? Maybe. Could the naming of the Tanner and his veneration as a saint Help in establishing the Church of St. Macarius as the patriarchal seat in 1200? Possibly. Now, interestingly, there is an academic geological paper out there that catalogued all the known earthquakes in Egypt by cross-referencing various narrative accounts, mostly Arabic ones, but Ibn Batriq narrative is there as well. The authors do not mention Al-Muqattam. They probably don't even know about it, as it is not in a historical journal, but a geology one. In this paper, it is clear that something did happen in Egypt in the 10th century. In that century, there were recorded eight large earthquakes, compared to three in the century before it and three in the century after it. In a matter of fact, the 10th century had the most recorded earthquakes ever, second only to the 15th century, which was another peak where the lighthouse of Alexandria was destroyed. The dates don't exactly fit, so Bursito's caution here. It's just something to think about. The last thing I'm going to say about this topic and really a disclaimer about all the above, is the lack of research and inquiry into it. There are tons of opportunities for research here, and I have no doubt if, let's say a group of archaeologists were to go and dig around the Church of St. Macarius, a whole new set of data and facts can completely change everything. The possibility that I'm wrong in something here is close to 100%, but that's okay. The idea here is to present the best available data as of today. And in our case, the research as of now is pretty slim. To end this week' episode, I would like to wrap up the career of Abraham. After the miracle of the mountain, he continued in his post for three more years. In those years, he continued to have an excellent relationship was Al-Aziz, Al-Mu'izz's son, an heir and a new Caliph, and from that he was able to initiate a building and a renovation program for the churches of Alexandria. As part of this program, he either reduced or started, and I'm leaning toward the latter, the yearly payment. Instead of a thousand dinars, or so, he paid them five hundred dinars. Still a relatively large sum. Not a problem for Abraham, but simony will rebound instantly the moment that he dies, which happened in late 978, suddenly and without warning. Like I mentioned last week, a rumor went around that he was poisoned, but without any hard evidence. Abraham ended up being a brief light of sainthood in a very dark period of the history of the Copts. After his death, everything would return back to what it was before his time. Simony would be a fact of life with all the vices that it brings. Patriarchs would be weak figureheads, overwhelmed quite easily by the tumults of the region's geopolitics. And as I alluded to earlier, the Copts would do okay under the Fatimids as individuals. But really, it was mostly an elite class of civil administrators who would do very well for themselves. The Coptic Church as an organization would continue its decline, and with it, the Copts as a people with a unique identity. When the Fatimids go away, the Coptic population would collapse pretty quickly in Egypt. The Crusades are often blamed, which is partially true. The Crusaders would be the trigger, but really, they just accelerated a process of gradual decline. You see, as it will become clear in the upcoming episodes, the Fatimids era was not a golden age where saints got bitter. No, it was an era where individual Copts at the top of a large piece could do well. As a group for the Copts, the Fatimids were not much different from all that came before them. And in that sense, the reign of Ibrahim was an exception. Not just in his positive relationship with the Caliph or his moral battles, but really in everything. His legacy was to be the exception, a Syrian in an Egyptian church, a layman in a truly monastic establishment, a reformer in a long line of decline, a saint in a world of corruption. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time. Mm -hmm.